Okay, good evening everyone. Tonight we are, well, tonight is our weekly where we try to add some theory to our practice. Dhamma study where we try to add some theory to our practice. Theory is useful generally in order to pacify doubt, pacify doubt about the practice. It's useful to about the practice. It's useful to create certainty and inspiration. It's useful for correcting wrong, uh, wrong practice, of course. <clears throat> it's useful for just gaining confidence when you hear the theory and you, it makes sense to you and you, you, uh, wrong practice, of course. <clears throat> it's useful for just gaining confidence when you hear the theory and you, it makes sense to you and you, you realize how right it is and realize how right it is that inspires confidence and gives you strength what theory isn't for is for reflecting and thinking and philosophizing not from a buddhist perspective what theory isn't for is for reflecting and thinking and philosophizing from a Buddhist perspective. So you should be careful not to rely too heavily. So you should be careful not to rely too heavily on theory. Not to seek out theory as a main activity where you're constantly investigating texts and teachings and listening to talk after talk about Buddhism, trying to become investigating texts and teachings and listening to talk after talk about Buddhism, trying to become enlightened through theory. It doesn't happen that way. Enlightened through theory doesn't happen that way. But for the reasons that theory is good, from a Buddhist perspective, we, we of course have to engage in the study of theoretical Buddhism. Anyway, this one is fairly simple. I don't know how in-depth in my discussion will be about Buddhism. Anyway, this one is fairly simple. I don't know how in-depth in my discussion will be, but there's much, there's things to be said. There's much, there's, there's things to be said. So first I'll go over the sutta, I think, rather than explain it first, we'll just go over what's in it. So the Buddha starts by talking about right concentration. And it's interesting because it's requisites. The rest of the sutta isn't really about concentration, which makes one think that as 
He says, I'll teach you about noble right concentration with its supports and requisites. The rest of the sutta isn't really about concentration, which makes one think that uh, it's meant to describe and to reinforce the importance of everything else that is required for the cultivation of right concentration. Concentration, I think, is one of the key points that a meditator tends to seek out in their practice as a means of concentration. Concentration, I think, is one of the key points that a meditator tends to seek out in their practice as a means of um, determining their progress, right? How concentrated are you? So I think for that reason alone, it's useful to use it as a, a base on what should develop our teaching and what it does here. But the first thing he says is that what is right concentration? Right concentration as a base on which to develop our teaching, and the Buddha does that here. But the first thing he says is that what is right concentration? Right concentration is the unification of mind, ekagata, when the mind is focused in one specific way, well, focused anyway, let's say, uh, that is accompanied by the other seven path factors. So right away he's describing concentration not by what it is, but by what uh, that is accompanied by the other seven path factors. So right away he's describing concentration not by what it is, but by what it involves what it signifies in, in terms of the qualities that are required to come together to gain proper and right concentration, true right concentration. And so he's, he's going to detail the Eightfold Noble Path, not, not in, in a, well, in, in various ways, but in various ways, but what he's going to stress here is how intertwined the factors are. So he says, well, what he's going to stress here is how intertwined the factors are. So he says, well, right view comes first. We're talking about how to get to that point where you have right concentration. He says, right view comes first. It's interesting because we often think of right view is coming at the end. Well, right view is referring to wisdom, right? Right. Interesting, because we often think of right view as coming at the end. Well, right view is referring to wisdom, right? Right view is what we're trying to get at the very end of our... Right view is what we're trying to get at the very end of our practice. How can you say right view comes first? So, and there's been a lot written about this, this Eightfold Noble Path and ways it goes and how it goes, and you'll see why 
a big part is because of this sutta, how it goes and how it goes, and see why. A big part is because of this sutta, how it, it messes things up. It's not quite so simple as we think, but what we it messes things up. It's not quite so simple as we think, but what we should take away from this certainly is that our the qualities of mind that we're trying to develop are all intertwined. There's no really simple way of trying to turn it into a 12-step program or something. The right view comes first. The right view comes first because without it, nothing. The right view comes first. The right view comes first because without it, nothing. The, the, it's like not it's like having a compass. Nothing. The, the, it's like not. It's like having a compass. Without it, you have no sense of where you're headed. It's like if you're in a dark room and someone says, "Find the door." How are you going to find the door? Can you walk straight to the door? No. Without right view, you can't follow the path. And I, funnily, walk straight to the door. Without right view, you can't follow the path. And I, funnily, you can't follow the path to right view. So it's it's in, you can't follow the path to right view. So it's it's in, it's in layers and stages and types. Right. So right view, in a mundane sense, is necessary for everything else. Even just to come and meditate, you had to have some sort of right view. Person has no right view, even if they're coerced into practicing meditation, they won't. A person has no right view, even if they're coerced into practicing meditation, they won't have any understanding of why it's good or any ability to see how good it is. Have any understanding of why it's good or any ability to see how good it is. And they're just not in a frame of mind where they understand that yes, this is important. Now, it's not to say that we all come to meditation with with perfect right view, but there is something there, which of course is going to in increase and create new types and new left view, but there is something there, which of course is going to in increase and create new types and levels of right view through our practice and through the fact that we have levels of right view through our practice and through the fact that we had that right view that uh, pushed us on. And he says, how does, how does right view come first? Not why does it come first? I'm trying to explain that. He doesn't really explain it, but he says it does. He says, how does it come first? If you come first. Why does it come first? I'm trying to explain that. He doesn't really explain it, but says it does. He says, how does it come first? How do you, how do you start with right view? Well, there's, how do you, how do you start with right view? Well, there's wrong view and there's right view. And, and you start by understanding that right view is right view and wrong view is wrong view. And so, as with all the eight path factors, 
And so as with all the eight path factors, it's easy at this point to start to think, okay, well, that means I have to study what is right do and what is it's easy at this point to start to think, okay, no, that means I have to study what is right view and what is wrong view and get that clear in my brain. I'll have these, this theory, right? But that's not, uh, that's not the, the best explanation of this. And so he's going to say here, he's going to explain how this is um, more, more complicated than simply hearing and learning would explain how this is. Uh, more more complicated than simply hearing and learning what's right view. Of course, there's a practical element to it. He says, so wrong view is quite clear. Right view, of course, there's a practical element to it. But he says, so wrong view is quite clear. Wrong view is saying that. Saying that there, there is no result of good deeds. There's no result of bad deeds. Wrong view is getting things wrong, like saying that when you die, there's nothing. Wrong view is getting things wrong, like saying that when you die, there's nothing. It's like saying that. It's like saying that. Like saying that we don't owe our parents anything. So it says no mother, no father. I wouldn't put. Um, I mean, these are all mundane wrong views. Um, and these are all mundane wrong views. Saying the Buddha wasn't enlightened, that sort of thing. Saying that the Buddha wasn't enlightened, that sort of thing. So wrong view is the denial of karma, the denial of cause and effect. We should add in there, it's it's wrong view of related to self. Views that, that in there, it's, it's wrong view of relate to self use that this body is me and mine and there is a self I have a soul this body is me and mine and there is a self I have a soul there's really lots of wrong views wrong views in all sorts of religions but he says what is right view right view is of two kinds right view is that which denies wrong view and says no no when you there is the result of karma when you do good things it does change denies wrong view and says oh no when you there is a result of karma when you do good things it does change it does change your life it does affect your future when you die it does change your life it does affect your future when you die there is a future all these Buddhist right views that you can read about, that you can study about. So if you have a confidence or even knowledge in all of that, that's right view. Suppose someone has remembered their past lives, then, well, then they have right view that there's that right view. Suppose someone's remembered past lives, then, well, they have right view that there is a, there is such a thing as rebirth.
there is a there is such a thing as rebirth but he says this is this type of right view is affected by the taints affected by the taints it means it's caught up in caught up in the world it's caught up in worldliness it's good it relates to merit to, to goodness happiness uh, it's good relates to merit to goodness uh, but it ripens it has as a result for their becoming but it ripens it has as a result further becoming because if you if you know that good deeds are good then you go out and do all sorts of good deeds right it means that goodness itself um, to that extent of understanding what's right and what's wrong again we're we're talking about right here is not enough And so he says that right view itself, um, it, it, to that extent of understanding what's right and what's wrong, again, we're, we're talking about right here, it's not enough. And so he says that right view that is free from becoming, is right view that comes from seeing things as they are, from, from right concentration, really, from getting to the point where you see not that, hey, I'm going to be born again. Hey, if I hurt someone, it's going to be consequence. Where you see not that, hey, I'm going to be born again. Or, hey, if I hurt someone, there's going to be consequences. Or if I do good deeds, good things are going to come from it. Right view is... Right view is the experience of reality just as it is it's that moment where you, you have an epiphany but it's not sudden it's a gradual gradual until it just sparks right view is the experience of reality just as it is it's that moment where you you have like an epiphany but it's not sudden it's a gradual gradual until it just sparks and you have a clear it technically only is one moment because it's that final moment where it's perfectly clear. We have a perfect and clear understanding of reality as is. And of course, there's much associated with that. There's understanding that what arises ceases. Nothing's worth clear. We have a perfect and clear understanding of reality as it is. And of course, there's much associated with that. There's understanding that what arises ceases, that nothing's worth clinging to. It's a state that is that is in the act of letting go. It's that moment where the mind that there's nothing worth clinging to, where the mind lets go, releases. You know, we talk about nirvana and nirvana. Nirvana is release. That moment, or it's what comes from the moment. Uh, letting go and he says the same things I, I guess i should really just repeat for them but you can read the sutta if you want it's midwinikaya 117 he goes having found that there is nothing worth clinging to 
where the mind lets go, releases. You know, we talk about Nibbana and Nirvana. Nirvana is release. It's that moment, or it's what comes from the moment of letting go. And he says the same things. I, I guess I shouldn't really just repeat verbatim, but you can read the sutta if you want. It's Majjhima Nikaya 117. He goes on with intention. He says it does the same thing with intention, with speech, and with right livelihood. But the other thing he says here is that for each of them, they are cultivated using right view, right effort, and right mindfulness. And so you could say an important part of this sutta, he says that to develop right view, you need right view, which is interesting, And but it goes back to this idea that things are more complicated than simply a linear progression. You need right view to develop right view. You need right effort, and you need right mindfulness. He says these three states run circle around right view. And he says the same thing with the other three. I'll get into exactly what they are. I'll at least do that. I'll at least do that. <clears throat> but so the right view that leads to right view is in the mundane sort of right view that we develop coming to the practice and that you get from talks and from asking me questions and asking asking your teacher questions. Uh, and that you get through the practice even. In the course of the practice, you're developing mundane right view. You're, you're seeing things more clearly, seeing that the things that you thought were stable, satisfying, controllable are, are not any of the above are impermanent, uh, unpredictable. Seeing that your experiences and even your own self is unpredictable. The things that you cling to, clung to, are unsatisfying. You cling to them, you cling to them, and nothing good comes of it. You don't get better as a result. And they're not under your control. The things you thought were under your control, the things you thought were me, were mine, the things you thought that were real, right? Like this fist is real. They're not real. No fist. So you gain all that through the practice, and that's right view. But it's not it's not right view. In, in the, let's say, the capital RV right view, capital right, capital right view is through right view and effort and mindfulness. You, you come to view things rightly. You come to that moment where you see things just as they are. And I, I, I try to explain this in a way that demystifies it. I don't want this to sound mystical. There's people are, there's, there's a, a long-standing 
concern from meditators that I get constantly. Concern that they're they're not sure if they're getting anything or if they're getting the results or what to be looking for in results or what they should expect or when are they going to have their epiphany and so on. When's the magic going to come? And so it's easy to miss the real magic that's going on all the time. I mean, the magic is quite mundane. You're gaining understanding, appreciation, and right view about reality. You're you're gradually, as you practice, seeing, eh, this is a bad habit. That's a bad habit. Seeing, oh, this is a good habit. Hey, this is helps me. This is good for me. And so you're changing constantly throughout the practice, changing who you are through knowledge, through understanding, through right view and all that comes from it. So right view, right effort, and these three, I think is, is quite important. And again, it, the fact that he's not focusing on concentration is quite telling. So meditators are often concerned that they're not focused, not concentrated enough, and they, they're trying to concentrate. And that doesn't seem to be how the Buddha taught. He taught to be mindful, to put out effort, really put out effort to be mindful. So the effort to send your mind to the object when you, and it's not a push really, it's just you make that determination that I'm going to watch my foot, and I'm going to watch my foot and lift my foot and so that your mind is with the object and you're aware of lifting. The, the noting itself is involves effort, right? It's not tiresome, but you have to do something. It requires effort and it builds effort, makes your mind quite effortful. And of course, mindfulness, you, mind, you are mindful. You are in a state where your mind is fully aware. Not like mind empty, mind, mindful is the opposite of mind empty. but it's not mindful in, in terms of full of all sorts of garbage, right? You come to practice, your mind is full. Full of what? Full of distracting thoughts and full of emotions and addictions. Oh no, you see everything. Full of boredom and frustration, worry and fear and doubt. That's not really a mind full. That's not the mind is full. That's like an empty mind. The mind is empty in the sense that there's no there's no value to it. It's like empty calories, empty. You can eat lots of uh, lots of potato chips and you won't be full because it's empty calories. So our mind is full of all sorts of garbage. But that's not mindful. When your mind is full, it means you're fully aware. You have a full mind. You, I mean, you have, you have a full attention on the, on the object. Your full attention is on reality. You have a mind that is full like the full moon in that it is pure and perfect and complete. 
when you're aware of an object uh, you don't slide off of it you don't immediately start reacting to it your mind is with the object grasps the object that's mindful in concentration how do you become perfectly focused or you might say perfectly in focus where your lens is just right you start with right view the next one is right intention right intention is our our inclination of mind so wrong inclination wrong intention is intention to cling to things uh, intention to get to engage in pleasure right that's the big one much of what we do great majority of things that we do as humans is just to gain pleasure it's wrong because of the way addiction works the way pleasure leads directly and necessarily to addiction you can't engage in the enjoyment of pleasure the mental appreciation of pleasure without the cultivation directly addiction is an encouragement or increase in your addiction to the states that you find pleasurable Uh, the second one is the will so hating others hating things anger frustration and even feel it towards a table or a computer or a telephone you can feel it towards a person you can towards a situation you can feel it towards your own body your own mind you can hate yourself you can be angry and frustrated that you're not a very good meditator because everything's chaotic in your mind And the third one is Vihinsa, which is cruelty, they call it. And it, it could relate to as well to being overbearing or condescending or conceited, that sort of thing. But putting delusion in there. Right intention is just the opposite. Your your intention, your your inclination is pure, is free from action, where you're content, at ease. Where you, you're kind and free from free from hatred. You're free from conceit and cruelty and arrogance and all that. But again, it says that's just, just being that good Buddhist person. Good person is not enough. It's the sort of thing that makes born again. We're born in heaven and as a wealthy, prosperous human being. But we'll be born again. It's not the way of suffering. It's not, it's not um, conclusive or final. When you develop the state of mind that's associated with right view, when you get to the point that your mind's pure, you enter into a, a state of mind. Again, it's culminating in one moment where all of your addictions have been let go. All of your hatred and aversion where you've actually... You've overcome it by seeing clearly, by right view, really. Again, the three things that get around right intention. How do you really and truly? And there's ways to fake it. Or, or not even necessarily fake it, but repress it. You can purposefully be nice. You can try your hardest to be kind and nice. You can even develop meditations around being nice. But the ultimate abandoning of being 
not nice. Having abandoned wrong intentions fully comes from right view, right view, right effort, and right mindfulness again. When you develop, when you see things clearly, this is, you might look at this as another, one of the great benefits of being mindful. How pure your mind comes. All these bad intentions are eradicated. They just don't have place because of, they, they know where to hide. Your mind is not in a, in a, it's not able to give rise to these kinds of thoughts. It's like if someone tells you to pick up a hammer and hammer your hand, you just can't do it because there's no question in your mind. You know, it'd be very, very difficult to do because there's no question in your mind that's going to hurt. But something, it's, it's like that on a much more fundamental, absolute level. We're just completely and clearly aware of the harm, the uselessness, the, the detriment that your mind is naturally, there's natural, so it's a law, like a law of nature that the mind through seeing clearly becomes incapable of, of what I call evil, it becomes incapable of stress. is incapable of hurting itself. Right after intention then becomes the thing about having right thoughts and right intentions is that it affects your speech and action. We'll just go through the other three quickly. Speech, action, and livelihood. So we talk about right speech. Again, the, one of the important parts of this is to remind us that just learning about right speech, right action, and keeping the precepts doesn't make you a perfect. It doesn't mean you're. It doesn't mean that you're following the full no path. It means you're you're heading in that direction. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to do, but it's not a substitute. Right speech is actually technically that moment where you see things clearly as they are. So what it means is that. Speech is is wrong. Speech is problematic. Wrong speech is a part of the evil that we do away with. It's evil because it causes stress. It causes complications in our lives. It's useless and bad. And you can see this objectively when you practice. You remember things you've done. You notice that you just said something that was harmful, someone else hurtful, wrong, it was manipulative, or so on. It comes so clear through the practice, just by watching, you come see, oh yes, these things are not right. And so, technically, right speech has nothing to do with speech at all, because right speech is the moment where you've gone totally beyond um, anything that could rise or what we might call wrong speech, wrong action, right, wrong livelihood. So all of these are only, only perfect in that moment. Again, so the culmination where everything about you is right. Someone talks about, yes, speech can be wrong. Well, then would it right speech? Perfect speech. Perfect speech is that moment where we become enlightened. That's the idea. I mean, it sounds strange because it doesn't, there's no talking at that time. But it's included because it's acknowledged that speech can be bad. And that the only way to truly eradicate wrong speech is to see things clearly as they are. Otherwise, it's just remembering, oh, yes, this is wrong. They said that's wrong. Okay. You slip up, of course, and eventually you'll forget, you'll die, you'll go on somewhere else. 
the bad speech will come back. But when you see clearly, nothing could ever give rise to right, wrong speech, wrong action, wrong life. So that's the Eightfold Noble Path, right? When you get to right livelihood, then the last three are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So he's already talked about how these work with right effort and right mindfulness. Concentration, he, does, he doesn't even say much about. I mean, he's not, he's not really trying. This is the discourse talking about enumerating Eightfold Noble Path. I would say, in fact, much of the purpose is to show us how entwined everything is and how practical it must be. That not theoretical. That theoretical knowledge of these things is good, but only a very limited sort of good. And so then what he does gives us a much more linear view of things. He says, right view comes first. And the one with right intention comes about. With right intention comes right speech, right action, right livelihood, from right livelihood, right effort. It means when you're acting properly, you're going to give rise to right effort. With right effort, there's right mindfulness. With right mindfulness, right concentration. With right concentration, there are two more factors. With right concentration, there comes right knowledge, which really is right view when it comes right down to it. But it's a different kind of right view because it's the right view of an enlightened being. Or, it's, or it could just be referring to the knowledge that one is enlightened. That's the rightest knowledge when you know that, hey, I've, I've made it, I've freed myself. With right, but with right, but it's not really because right knowledge leads to right deliverance. So you, you become free because of right knowledge. But what is that right knowledge? It's the knowledge of things as they are. It's that moment, the culmination of your practice, of your work, of your path. And then he, then he says, right, with right. Uh, with right view, uh, what, what I'll restress really this last part is that with right view, what good is it? Well, wrong view is gone. Well, what, what good is that? Why is it important? Because, <clears throat> and it should be obvious, but it, it's worth reiterating, it's worth repeating. With wrong view, lots of bad stuff comes. Lots of unwholesome stuff comes. Lots of suffering comes. He says at the end of this discourse that no one can really argue with this. One of the great things you'll notice about Buddhism, I mean, people have problems with things like rebirth and so on. There's very little that's particular in the in the basics of Buddhism, which is the full noble path. It's really hard to. There, there are aspects, but with the full noble path, particularly, it's hard to argue with it. It's not. You know, is right view a bad thing? Is right view useless, meaningless? No. If you don't realize that, how important right view is, you've got the problem. If you think that right view is meaningless, something very wrong. It's, I mean, it's usually because we've never thought about it. We have our lives thinking, oh yes, be good to others, that's important. But we never think, oh wait a minute, the only way I can do that is if I have right view. Uh, right, right intention, of course, we think about, we know how wrong intentions are very harmful to us and to others. Right speech, wrong speech. How troublesome that is, wrong action, wrong livelihood, wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, wrong concentration. They're all in a way with, and that's what's important about them. And that's basically the Sutta. So I want to say a few things, but I've already said some of them, so I won't be, don't want to be that long. The first takeaway is in regards to concentration, that again, it is not the really practice. 
the practice is effort, review, effort, and mindfulness. And the book says this in various ways in various places. It's a bit of a, it's a bit misleading all this talk about the jhanas because it appears to sound like you should just develop the jhanas, which means forcibly creating concentration by repressing or by some kind of means or other. But that, that doesn't really appear to be how the Buddha is teaching. And, and more importantly, it's a very dogmatic sort of look at things to say, well, you know, the Buddha said concentration. Okay, I'm going to develop concentration. In fact, if, if you just think about it for a second, we're talking about right view, which means seeing, you know, understanding, having the view of reality that is right. And the only way to get that is to actually observe reality. Is concentration important? Of course it is. But it has to be concentration based on reality. It has to ultimately, whether you start with sort of tranquility meditation of some sort or transcendent meditation or whatever, it has to ultimately come down to being focused on things as they are. And so that's what he says here. And this is an important example of how he puts concentration in perspective. He says, what is concentration? When mind is focused and has these other seven qualities to it. And he focuses all of his attention on, on the other qualities. Right view, right effort, right mindfulness. If you focus just on those three, you're, you're doing pretty well. Because they're the ones that cultivate everything else. The second thing I just reiterate, I've already talked about, is that right and wrong, good and bad, in a mundane sense, especially in a theoretical intellectual sense, not really what it's all about. In our meditation, we try not to judge things. We try not to feel guilty about how bad we are, right? You sit and meditate and have all these bad thoughts. You think, oh, gosh. And we remember all the bad things we've done. I mean, maybe not if you haven't, then kudos to you. If, if you come and you don't, you just remember all the good things you've done, then great. But more important are the bad things, because that's what we're trying to work out. If you're already full of only good, then you have to be already enlightened. But we don't really judge this. We're not trying to become enlightened. We're trying to see things as they are. Enlightenment comes from seeing things as they are. And includes the bad things. Seeing all the bad things inside. Understanding them. Not rejecting them. The rejection comes from the understanding. Again, we see the prominence of mindfulness. I, I would like to spin it that way. Some people might disagree with me, but if you really read this, it's quite clear how important mindfulness is. Right view, of course, has the, the, the prominence in this sutta. But when you dissect that and you say, well, okay, you have the right view, what does that mean? It means the right view really to be mindful and mindfulness to develop right view. What is effort? It's the effort to be mindful. And, and feel comfortable in this because the has a whole sutta called Foundations of Mindfulness talking about how that's the way. And I think that's clear. And that's why we call what we do mindfulness. It's why we reiterate and we use this word. It's not the best translation of the word sati. It's, it's good enough. It helps us remember that we're trying to grasp the objects as they are. We're trying to cultivate this clear awareness of things as they are. Sampajanya clear awareness of things as they are that's mindfulness when you create a full mind a mind that is full of the object not seeing and then 
Oh, I like that. How can I get that? How can I keep that? Anyway, just some. Thank you all for listening. Have a good night. Talk on the path and the importance of mindfulness. Why? Why practical? Um, practical achievement. All these factors is much more important. Is more important than theoretical understanding. Anyway, that's the suit for tonight. Thank you all for listening. Have a good night.